Well, friends, when was the last time that you were anxiously awaiting a gift only to open it and be disappointed? Don't know if that's ever happened to you. Sure, for some of you children, maybe there are some gifts that you're hoping to receive this year. Maybe wives, you were expecting a certain gift from your husbands, and you opened the box, and lo and behold, it was a vacuum cleaner. Now, if any of you husbands bought a vacuum cleaner for your wife this year, sorry, just threw you under the bus. Last year, my wife got me a, uh, a little coffee contraption uh, that, that, that was very nice, and I was very excited about getting it. Uh, only that when we went to use it in the weeks after I'd received it, we found that it, it, it did not uh, measure up to what we wanted it to be. And so, so last year, not only was I a bit disappointed in my gift, but so was my wife in the outcome. We took that guy back and got our money back for that, let me tell you. But oftentimes in life, we, we find a reality that, that Scripture holds out for us, that, that the things of this world, as we possess them and have them long enough, lose the glisten and the, and the glitter the new shininess over time. That even the most wanted things in this world over time don't fully meet our needs, do they? I wonder what maybe you're expecting this Advent season. And if there's anything maybe you're putting your hope in that might ultimately let you down. Well, the, during the Advent seasons, we like to take this time in, in the church calendar or in the year of the church to kind of slow things down. We realize, that as your pastors, we realize that out there the world is going crazy. There's busyness. You're running to and fro, trying to do all kinds of things. And so what we like to do as a church during this time of Advent is kind of slow down uh, the pace a little bit. And in some ways, just take time to reflect. And so you, maybe you found this already in these first two sermons in the book of Ruth, that these sermons have been more meditative devotional even. Uh, in the new year, we're going to be jumping back into Hebrews and we'll, we'll get to work uh, theologically. We'll, we'll jump back into it there. But in this Advent season, we're trying to just slow down for, for a couple of reasons. First, because we want to look back and meditate on the reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And at the same time, there's something else we want to do, and that is to look forward to Christ's second Advent to His second coming as we anticipate His arrival when He will come and redeem and renew all things. And so this year we've been doing that by going to the book of Ruth. It's worked out really well because there's four chapters and so we've been able to break it up into four sermons and we've hit Ruth 1 and with Ruth 2. And in each of these though, we find throughout the book of Ruth that, that really the story is a story of kind of uncertainty. It is a story of, of darkness and, and bitterness and trouble and life and, and, and the question of what is God doing here? Is there any joy to be had in the sorrows of our lives? Is there any, any satisfaction and fullness to be had when everything around us is empty? When our very hearts and souls feel empty? You may remember this verse I read a couple weeks ago from Isaiah 45, 2 through 3, that I think really encapsulates kind of what the whole book of Ruth itself is about. Isaiah wrote there, I will go before you, this is God speaking, and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness 
and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. It's really what Ruth is kind of all about. That God and His providence and His sovereignty and His, His power over time and circumstances is able to reveal treasures in the darkness. That, that, that His people in Ruth and that we, many, many, many years later, may know that it is God, Yahweh, the covenant-making God, who calls us by name. And this is really the question of Christianity, isn't it? It's the question that the biblical authors deal with all over the place and that many of you may be in your own doubts and questions are dealing with as well. Will God deliver on His promises? Will His gifts of grace and mercy and faith and all that flows out of it, will it measure up in the end? It's the question that Naomi has been asking since the death of her husband and her two sons as she made her way from the enemy city of Moab back to the city of Bethlehem. This question of will God deliver? Will God come through? God has made my life bitter. What is the purpose of all of this? And so in some ways the book of Ruth, just to kind of give you an idea as maybe you read through it in, in these series or go back and read through it, is it's kind of a flipping book. So, so in chapter 1 we really saw emptiness be brought to the forefront, right? They, Naomi and Ruth lose everything with their husbands. They come back and, and they have nothing. By the end in chapter 4, we'll see that the emptiness has turned into fullness. And last week, Pastor Sean displayed for us from chapter 2 how it's all about God's faithfulness then in that emptiness, that God is a God who faithfully delivers. We saw God's faithfulness to Naomi, God's faithfulness to Ruth, and God's faithfulness through this man, Boaz. And so now as we come to chapter 3 of the book of Ruth, it moves from God's faithfulness to our faith in Him. So last week when we saw what God had done, the question this morning is what will we do with it? And so you see there in your bulletin, we have six points. Six points, you guys. And I promise it's not going to be an extra long sermon. So we're going to blow through these. You can see them there in your bulletin if you want to look at them and follow along, if you want to take notes in your own notebook, what have you. But let me invite you to go ahead and turn to Ruth 3. Ruth chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible of your own, you can feel free to use one of those there in the pew in front of you. Ruth 3 is on page 209. If you're new to the Bible, when you get to page 209, just look for that big number 3. And that's where I'll begin reading here in just a moment. I'll give you a second to turn to Ruth chapter 3. And as you do, you can see that those six points all begin the same way. Answering the question of what is faith exactly? What does Ruth, the book of Ruth, teach us that faith is exactly? So let me invite you to stand with me once more for, out of honor and respect for the reading of God's Word I am going to read the entire chapter to us. It's not very long. Friends, hear now the word of the Lord from Ruth 3, 1 through 18. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? 
See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said to her, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Well, as I said a moment ago, in this passage we really find six different concepts, sides of faith itself. In preparing this text this week, I was really helped uh, by Christopher Ash, who, who's a theologian who's, who's written a lot about the book of Ruth. And, and these six things are things that he drew out. And I thought, man, I'm just going to grab onto these and hand them to you because I think they're very helpful in understanding what is happening in this chapter. Because let's just be honest. Out of Ruth 1 through 4, if you had to pick a chapter that's a little bit weird and a little bit like, what in the world is going on here? It would be Ruth chapter 3. So as the three elders discussed who would take Ruth chapter 3, I drew the short straw. So we're going to look at it today, and I'm really excited. There are a lot of different moving pieces in this passage. There are a lot of different things happening that understanding the context of what's going on here. And I'm guessing there's some of us as we read this, because of our what I would say an over-sexualized culture, read this and we're like, this is kind of odd. This is kind of weird. What exactly is happening here? Is there any impropriety that's going on? And so let's jump right into it by thinking about the first thing we see, and that is faith itself is intentional. Faith is intentional. And we see this really in verses 1 through 5 of Ruth 3. You remember that just prior to this we found that Ruth was gleaning during the harvest season, during the barley harvest. She had been gleaning the entire season. That's how chapter 2 ends, by talking about this great work that she's been doing. And it's all because Boaz has made it possible for her. Remember, he said, you stay in my field, 
And he even told his, his workers to, to drop you know, accidentally some of the barley on the ground so that she could have even more to glean, to gather. But as you know, as we know, especially in December right now, the harvest season doesn't last. That, that idea of her gathering during the harvest season was a wonderful kindness from Boaz himself, but it was only temporary. She learned about this Redeemer from Naomi in chapter 2, that Boaz was a Redeemer, that he was one who, who could marry her to uphold the Leverite marriage vows, and, and we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But you see there in verses 1 through 5 that, that Naomi realizes this, this gleaning during the barley harvest is in fact not a lasting solution. She wants to find Ruth what? Look back at verse 1. My daughter, should I not seek rest? For you, that it may be well with you. That word rest in some of your translations may also rightly translated be home. May I not find a, a place for you to dwell. Rest. And so we see now begin Naomi's faith begins to, to grow back, whereas before it had been it had been a bruised reed. It had, it had been a, a nub of faith in questioning the Lord and, and wondering what He was doing, it begins to now grow back and blossom. Naomi comes back to this original desire that she had back for Orpah, who was her other daughter-in-law who went back to Moab, and Ruth, that, that they would have a home and that they would have husbands. You remember this back in chapter 1, verse 9. It was good then for Ruth, Naomi says, to stay close to Boaz. But Naomi's seeking now a deeper goodness this rest for her. And so she presents this plan to Ruth, this plan that, that's not going to manipulate. It's not going to seek to cajole or, or, or to trick Boaz into marrying Ruth. No, we see that, that it, it is a full plan that, that, that is quite transparent. They're going to make it known to Boaz their intentions. And the intention is for Boaz to marry Ruth. And so Ruth via Naomi's plan is going to go full in. Now this plan, or as we're going to see later on, it has its roots in this covenant faith that God will keep His word and that He will Himself be faithful. So, so let's think about that plan for just a second then. The first thing is that she was to prepare herself. You see that there? That she was to wash away the dirt. That she was to put on perfume that would, that would create a sweet aroma. That she was to dress herself in a certain attire. Now, why was she to do this? What is the intention of Naomi in telling her to do this? Well, it's not because she's propositioning Boaz in any kind of uh, immoral way. But instead, she's presenting herself as exactly what she desires to be, that of a bride. She is getting ready in the way that the brides would get ready during this time. She is making it known to Boaz, not just with her words, but she is to make it known with her very presence and the aroma of her presence and the dress that she is wearing that she desires to be redeemed and to find a home in Boaz's house. And she is told then where to go and when. She is told to go to the threshing floor. This harvest there at the threshing floor that, that we saw in chapter 2 is now realized. The bounty of the grain is realized and she is to go at night. Now, why is she to go at night? Back in chapter 2, everything was done in the day. Remember that? In the blazing sun of the fields and picking the grain. But now it's nighttime. Why is she told to be, to be there at night? 
It's because Naomi and Ruth want to maintain their integrity. They want no scandal here. They want anybody to be able to say anything, especially about Ruth, since she herself is a foreigner. She, she's, she's a Moabite. Enemies of God. And so if anybody were to see her dressed as she was, saying the things that she's saying, all kinds of scandal could rise up. And so she has to go at night in secrecy. And she has to lie down. There's an intimacy here that is expressed. And the final thing she is to do is to uncover his feet. Now this idea of uncovering his feet, just to be honest, in the Hebrew, it's ambiguous. We're not really sure what it means or, or, or what's going on here. But I think to say the least amount that we can about it, for sure about it, is it was enough, as we read a second ago, to startle him. So if we want to stand on sure ground about what is this uncovering his feet, it's a mechanism of waking him up without shouting, Hey, Boaz, get up. I'm here and I want you to marry me. No. She wants to be a little bit quieter about it. And so this feet uncovering is is a way to, to quietly wake him up. I don't know how many of you uh, struggle with cold feet at night, but uh, I'm assuming he's not wearing socks. So. so we see here then this reminder of what or who Boaz really is. Just a quick recap of what the, the Leverite marriage is. It's L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, Leverite marriage. What, what's the idea there? It's the idea in the Old Testament that, that if a husband died, the, the next brother in line or the closest male relative who was unmarried would take that woman for his wife, uh, not because they subjugated women and, and wanted to pass them around or something weird like that. No, he would take her for his wife so that the family line could be continued, so that she could be protected and so that she could be provided for. Unfortunately, Malon and Chilion were the only sons of Naomi, and they're both dead, as Naomi points out in chapter 1. And so who's the male, the next man who's closest to them? We find out really here that there's two, that Boaz is one of two. I'll let David deal with the, that next week and, and what Boaz does in taking care of business there. But we see that this, this, this idea here is held out and it's continued that this is the stand that Naomi takes. And Ruth shares in, in this covenantal trust of God. She continues her pledge to stay with Naomi. She has to go af- look after other Jewish men. But she stays with Naomi. What do we see here? We see that they demonstrate that faith is intentional. That it's intentional. That that faith moves forward. That to have faith in the God of Scripture is not sitting back. It is not being lazy. It's not being apathetic. But faith itself works itself out. That it moves forward. That it takes hold of God and all that He might do. Our faith is deliberately reaching out and not passively waiting. And faith is a gift from God Himself. And so if you have been given faith, friend, it's not something you can just put on the shelf. As if saying, I have faith in Jesus is is a one-time thing. But faith is something that moves us and transforms us because of the one that we have faith in that He is a God who calls and directs in our lives. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here today and you don't know if you actually have faith in God. Friend, what I want you to see is 
throughout the rest of this passage that God, this God that they have faith in, that they are moving in spite, I mean, sorry, in light of, that this God is the promise making and the promise keeping God. And so if I could be so bold, friend, ask for faith right now that you may have it to hear the rest of this sermon with trust in who God is and trust in what His Word says. But faith is not just intentional. No, we got a ways to go here. That was the biggest point, so we're going to get through the rest of them now. Ruth actually has to go. She actually has to get up and go. And so we see this in verses 6 and 7. As we look at this reality that faith is also very vulnerable, that faith, faith is this thing that, that makes us transparent, that opens us up, that being people who have faith, who have trust and hope in God, in some ways puts us at risk. You look back there at verses 6 and 7. Let me read them just to remind us. So she, meaning Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. The vulnerableness of this scene, I hope, is apparent to you. There's a sense in which here there's a lot of, of questioning and uncertainty the Hebrew author in writing this uses certain language to help us get this, this idea of, of she came softly. That there's a, a certain risk that she's running. I mean, you got to think about it. She's going at night. She's going to a place, the threshing floor, that would have been full of men. Remember, this is the time of the judges where there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And here she is, this vulnerable woman. Must be left wondering then, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And so Boaz is there. He eats and drinks and is merry. Now, I know some of you who may be teetotalers wonder, what does it mean he ate and drank and, and he was merry? He drank an alcoholic drink and it livened his heart and he got sleepy because of it. It was actually wine, okay? And so he's relaxed, he's cheerful, he's full, and he's sleepy. And so he lies down at the end of the grain heap, and she entrusts herself then to this Redeemer. She brings herself before him. She does exactly what her mother-in-law says, and she uncovers his feet, trusting that he is going to protect her, that he is going to treat her right, that she has no other hope. Imagine if Boaz is not a worthy man as it said he was in chapter 2. How he could take advantage of her at this very moment. Note the scariness then of entrusting ourselves, even as Christians, to God. Do we trust that He is good? Do we trust that He is worthy and that He will do no wrong to us? We see there this uncovering as I mentioned away, a second ago, a way to, to wake him softly. At the same time, she displays exactly what she needs from him. She needs his covering. She needs to be covered as she uncovers him. She entrusts herself to Boaz as a young woman, a foreigner, beside him in the darkness. Friends, often when we think about vulnerability, we associate it with weakness. With, with incapability. But that's not what vulnerability is here, is it? We see that, that faith is vulnerable because it exposes oneself 
to be changed and to be moved and to do sometimes dangerous things at the risk of hurt and harm, but on the other hand, at the risk of, of, of beauty and glory. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about this that in his book, The Four Loves, that, that if you don't want to be hurt, if you don't want your heart to ever be broken, you're more than welcome to take it and to, to hide it away, to put it in a, in a casket, to keep it away from everybody, to keep it away from the world, to keep it away from, from God Himself. You can, you can hide your heart away. But when you hide your heart away, what we find that it does inside that casket, inside that box you put it in, is it grows hard and ugly and twisted. So friends, if we want our hearts to be moved, if we want to see beauty and glory in the world around us through God working in us and through the people in our lives, we must walk in a vulnerable faith such as this. So the question for us is, would you rather walk by faith in God or stack up your securities in yourself and in the world around you? But faith-induced vulnerability here, we see, puts Ruth in a very intimate situation, doesn't it? As we continue on with the third thing we see, with faith being intimate, look at verses 8 and 9. It says there, at midnight the man was startled, I'd say, and turned over. And behold... A woman lay at his feet. Now I just want to stop there and, and just note, because one of the things we can miss, I think as preachers we can miss, is drawing out the beauty of the story. We've been reading this story with our kids as we've been working through it, and when we read this verse, one of our sons said, Wait a second, he can't do that, she can't do that, that's sin. <laughs> we miss what's actually going on here. We're like, this doesn't seem right. This seems scary. This seems uncertain. This seems very intimate. And even our children, children, you may recognize this. But you notice in verse 8 there that it says, At midnight, not Boaz, but the man, was startled and turned over, and behold, not Ruth, a woman lay at his feet. Now the author didn't suddenly just forget the characters' names and, and who's in the story. No, he's emphasizing the darkness of the thing. That in the darkness, it's just a man and a woman, quietly, as close as your head to your feet. They're there. The quiet of the night. And so he says, who is this? It's the same question he asked back in chapter 2 when he walked out into the field and saw the Moabite woman working and gleaning with his women. Who is she? Now, it would be wrong of us to read into this text too much and imagine that they gaze into one another's eyes longingly and their hearts are all aflutter and there's all of this attractiveness and mushy-gushy stuff. The text doesn't tell us that. What does the text tell us? Well, it tells us how Ruth responds. There in verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant. And here's the key to the whole passage and really to the whole book. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth tells him who she is there in the quiet dark of the night. and She says this idea of spreading your wings. Spreading your wings. We see here that Ruth's desire for Boaz is not some physical attractiveness. 
It's not some deep longing desire to be with Him intimately, physically. But it goes far beyond that. Almost something spiritually. That she would desire that He would spread His wings and show her goodness, service, and care. And so he responds, realizing what's going on here, doesn't he? And he says, The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. There's the same exact idea of these wings. It's the idea that we find throughout Scripture that those who, who find their resting place, those who wait on the Lord, rise up on wings like eagles. Well, whose wings? God's wings. This idea that, that God Himself is the protector and the keeper. And so Ruth and Boaz create this beautiful picture of what it means to be a follower of God and what it means to have faith in God. And it is a faith of intimacy that we, as God's people, come under Him and are cared for Him and protected by Him. But that we are watched over and kept. I remember years ago on a mission trip in Poland being with the Roma people and talking to a man in a village there where, where there had never been a missionary. He was an older man and, and nobody had ever came to, to share the gospel in that place. And he said one night he had a dream, he had a vision, and in that vision there was a man who, who, who was unclothed. And this man says to this man in his dream who's unclothed, he says, here, you need, you need some clothes. Let me get you my coat. Let me get you some clothes. And the man says, no, I do not need your covering. You need my covering. Well, several weeks later that a missionary showed up in that place and told them about Jesus. And the man came to realize that the person he had seen in his vision was that very man. Friends, this is what Jesus does. Jesus comes and spreads his wings over us. He comes and He covers us. He wraps us into His arms. And He protects us and He keeps us. There's a lot to be said here for us as husbands. What is our role in caring for our wives? If we're supposed to love our wives the way that Christ loves the church, we have a picture here of how we can do that. So husbands, I would encourage you to consider that in your own lives. Wives, don't elbow them right now. What does it look like? We see this so perfectly in Christ that He keeps us and watches over us. Well, let's keep going then and look at the fourth thing we see here, that faith itself is grounded. And we see this, just, we see it at the end of chapter, or verse 9, but also into verse 10. I read it a moment ago. But we see here this idea, thinking back to the Leverite marriage of Deuteronomy 25, that all of this emotion that, that is packed into this chapter and all of these feelings and this desire that we, that we seem to feel between Ruth and Boaz, that they're not actually grounded in just their feelings, right? And, and this is a good just side note for, for young people as, as you're thinking about marriage and, and maybe future spouses. It's not all built on feelings. Marriages are not built on feelings. If marriages are built on feelings, then marriages don't last very long at all. But all of this is grounded in something else. What is it? Well, for Ruth and Boaz, it is grounded in this covenant with God Himself. That God promises in Deuteronomy 25 to provide a people 
and to provide husbands for the women who are without them. And so we see here that this faith that they have is grounded in this. See this in, in what Boaz says. He says that, that, that this second kindness is better than the first. What does he mean there? Well, I think a lot of times we read that and we think, well, it's, it's, it's her kindness to Boaz. Like she showed up, clean, smelling good, wearing her best. And man, she's being really kind to Boaz. I don't think that's it at all. That's not what Boaz is talking about. In fact, this kindness is a kindness that he's already known. It's a kindness he mentioned back in chapter 2 when he first met Ruth. It is her kindness to Naomi. And so when Boaz says to her, hey, that kindness that you showed at first, being loyal to Naomi, the second is now even better than the first because the second kindness is that you're coming to me, that you're remaining loyal to Naomi by remaining here with me, that you would not go after other men as you easily could, but that you would remain loyal to your mother-in-law and seeking me to be the redeemer of the family. You know how we know that. It's because this word kindness here is the word hesed. In the Hebrew, it is the word that's often translated loving kindness or steadfast love. And it's often used of God himself, of his loyalty to his people. We see that same loyalty built out here. And so Boaz said, the Lord bless you. May Yahweh, this God who makes covenant with his people, right? Yahweh is the covenant name of God. May this Lord bless you. The love of Ruth, we find then in this book, I hope it don't burst, burst any bubbles here, the love of Ruth is not primarily a romantic love then, is it? And we, we should rightly assume that a romantic love blossoms between Ruth and Boaz. I think that's right. But the love of this book is not primarily a, book, a, a, a love of romance. But it is a love of kinship. It is a love of loyalty between Ruth and Naomi. And even greater than that, between Ruth and the God of Naomi. That Ruth, in stepping out in faith, grounded in who God is, moves forward trusting that He will do all that He says He will do. This is why the, the covenants of the Bible are so important. This is why covenants in our marriages are so important. This is why covenant church membership is so important. It's because it gives words to the binding loyalty that we make, not just with God, but with one another. So I wonder how you're doing in the grounding of your covenant relationships. Let's keep moving then thinking about the fifth thing that we learn about faith from this passage in verses 11 through 15. Ruth is here. The secrecy of night, vulnerable, alone, in darkness, with this man of standing. She's reached out in bold and daring faith. So what's going to be the outcome? What will be the effect of her faith? Do you realize how much she's laid it all on the line? intimately opening herself up to, to all kinds of trouble, not just from the world around her, but from Boaz himself. How's he going to respond? Well, let's look back at 11 through 15 once more. Boaz says to Ruth, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. 
For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Let me just stop there. They sing a lot about Ruth, her being a Moabite, part of the, the enemies of God. And yet all the townsmen know her to be a worthy woman. It shows that she, she has a reputation already among them. Picking up verse 12, And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he will not, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Now, as I said, David's going to deal with, with Boaz searching this thing out and, and looking into it next week and, and this other redeemer and who is he and what, what, what's going on there. The thing I want to draw out, though, here is the first thing that Boaz says to her. How does he begin? In verse 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. Friends, this is the effect of our faith. This is the effect of our faith is that we do not have a spirit of fear, but of love and self-control. The effect of faith doesn't mean that we're not going to face fearful things, that we're not going to wrestle with fear and struggle with being fearful, but the effect of our faith is that God is a God who keeps His promises and we need not fear. We need not worry. We need not be discouraged and full of anxiety because God is worthy and He is capable he is worthy and capable to keep us and to watch over us. Jesus himself gets at this in Mark 6.50 when he comes to his disciples in the windy storm and they get scared on the boat because the wind's blowing and they see him walking on the water. What does he say? He says, take heart, fear not, for it is I. He says in the word, in, he says, I will do for you all that you ask there. Ruth receives the assurance she needs. It's simple, clear, and hopeful. Boaz didn't have to play by the rules of the Leverite marriage. He could have just taken her right then. But he does. We see how he is this man of integrity. He's worthy. And so it builds this great tension in the story as we begin to think about the last point here in a second. Is Boaz too honorable? Has he just given up this woman to someone else? We've been reading this story with our kids. Like I said, it, it's amazing how when we get to the end of the chapters, they want to keep going. Maybe some of you do as well. You'll have to wait and show up next week to find out. But we find here that faith is effective. We find this paradox then that although faith is a gift of God, is really exercised by us. And then God responds to that faith as we exercise it. It's a gift given so that we may lean upon Him. In some ways, it's like being given a pencil specifically to write letters to the person who gave it to you. That our faith is given to us by God Himself so that we may exercise it and take it up and trusting Him and following Him and seeing Him work. And we see that here with Boaz as he points forward to the greater Boaz, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who shows no hesitation in fulfilling His promises to us. 
We realize this, and this is what we celebrate in this time of the year, that Christ stepped into our poverty and stepped into our pain, that He, he fully obeys the Father, achieving perfect righteousness, which He then gives to us. He paid for all of our sin. Not one sin of the believer is left unpaid for. He rose from the dead, displaying that all of that debt has been paid, that it's been fully paid, that it's over and it's done. And He ascended, and He ascended to watch over all of His people. And He fulfills all that He says. And He will return and set all wrongs right. And we will worship Him for all of eternity. This is our Savior. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a follower of this Jesus, this is the one we want you to see and put your faith in today that we have been praying that you would turn to and turn from your sin. And yet we should close by considering that faith in the end, finally, is patient. It's patient. Just as in chapter 2, Boaz will not let Ruth go home empty-handed. And so she takes all of the bounty back to Naomi. And we began to see that this one who had came back to Bethlehem empty is beginning to be filled. But it's only a taste. It's only a bit. It's only six sheaves of the fullness that she's about to experience. But not yet. I think what's amazing to me about this story, we realize that, that, that the verse numbers and the chapter numbers have been added Afterwards, and like they're not in there, they're not, they're not, you know, infallible. Or... But this is broken up really well because we see at the end of each of these scenes, there's a tension, there's a waiting, there's a patience that is required. This is why the Advent season is meant to bolster our own faith, because we've seen in part what God has done in the beauty and the glory of Jesus coming and living and dying and rising and ascending. But we're patiently waiting for the end. We're patiently waiting for the final filling, the final fulfillment. So let me close by asking you this this morning. What does faith couched in the second advent actually look like? One that rests in the character of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Ruth's Redeemer, Boaz, could bring her safety and security and a, a place in society and a, a child for the family line. But friends, our Redeemer, He does so much more, doesn't He? He conquers all of our foes. He restores us to the Father. And He gives us newness of life. That's just a few. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And then in Hebrews 10, which we're going to look at in just a couple weeks, it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he, was perfect, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let me close by pointing out something that I don't know if you caught the first time through. You see there in Ruth 3, verse 1, what Naomi says to Ruth. 
Now, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? Should I not seek a home, a dwelling, security, shalom for you? Will it happen? Let's look at how Boaz closes it. Or I'm sorry, let's look at how Naomi closes it talking about Boaz there in verse 18. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest. Friends, in our troubles, in our sorrows, in our longings, in our deep darkness, we can rest as Ruth does, knowing that we have one who will not rest until he has finished what he has started. We can have shalom, home in God, and in faith in Him, because we have a Savior who's working, pleading the very merits of His blood on our behalf. In just a moment, we're going to come to the table and consider this even more. But as we do, let me close by asking you this. What are you doing with the gift of faith. Have you received it? Have you received the gift of faith in God through Jesus Christ? And if you have, what does it look like in your life? Are you taking it up and are you walking forward in it? Because the gift of faith is a gift that will never, ever let us down. Let me pray. Lord God, we do pray and we ask, Lord, that you would direct our lives, that you would shape us and mold us through Jesus Christ and our faith in Him. We pray and we ask that we would not be people who are lazy or apathetic about our faith, who do not leave the sorrows and the troubles of our lives alone to fester within our hearts and our souls, Lord, but that we bring them to you in faith. Because, God, you are the object of it all. So we do come before you now, praying and asking as we prepare to take this meal, that you would grow our faith and our trust in Jesus, our Redeemer. It's in his name we pray. Amen.